Support for Long Form this week comes from listening. If you've ever had to rip through a huge pile of academic papers, you know how painful it can be to spend all that time staring at a piece of paper. Listening makes it really simple to convert anything you have to read into spoken words that you can enjoy on the go. Uses AI to generate realistic voices that sound like actual human beings. Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. I'm here with my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Hey, Aaron. Hey, you guys. Hey, hey, hey. I've missed you guys. I've missed you both immensely, and I come with an offering of a great show. I talked to Sam Anderson this week, a longtime fan of his work. Kind of shocking he has not been on this podcast until now. Uh, he has been writing for the New York Times Magazine for the last decade, if you have read just about anything about the NBA in New York Times Magazine, it was probably by him. Most recently, he profiled uh, Kevin Durant. I, I believe he uh, profiled Kevin Durant directly before the Nets went down in a flaming ball uh, during the last playoffs. So that one reads uh, kind of weird, but interesting, like his project is really ongoing with these basketball players because he wrote a lot about the Oklahoma City Thunder uh, when uh, they still had the Kevin Durant, James Harden, and Russell Westbrook trio. And he's still covering these same players almost a decade later. He actually wrote a book about that called Boomtown, which is kind of a really interesting like format. It's one of those dual narrative books that's both about the history of Oklahoma City and the Oklahoma City Thunder, their expansion team. So, yeah, great conversation. Really enjoyed it. Love to have a guest off of the uh, can't believe we haven't had this guest on list. We say this often and it's always true. Especially when that guest wrote what might be my favorite piece of sports journalism in the last 10 years. That Durant article, it's an all-timer. It's an absolute all-timer. We make this show with the people at Vox. Thanks so much to them. And now here's Aaron with Sam Anderson. Hello, Sam Anderson. Hi. Hi. Okay, I want to start, I was just reading, I don't know if it's your most recent, it probably came out about a year ago, you wrote a profile of Kevin Durant right before the last mm. NBA playoffs, which has like mm-hmm. a slightly like ominous negative echo now, because it's like, can KD do it in the playoff? And it's like, yeah, the, the answer is no. But the, I think- Yeah, the Brooklyn Nets, KD and, and his super team, the greatest team of all time. I think that <laughs> the editors like really insisted on that kind of phrasing. And I was like, well, I suggested like a million different ways to do that, but that's what they wanted to go for. And that's what made a lot of people click and get mad and argue with the piece without even reading it and et cetera, et cetera. Interesting. Well, when you were talking to Kevin Durant, I think at one point you were like, what do you want to talk about? So I'm putting it the same to you right now. What do you feel like talking about? Oh, what a terrible interview technique. (laughs) I didn't know how bad that was until I heard it come back at me. Um, Oh, no, it was it was him. He asked me, what do you want to talk about? Oh, that was him asking you. Okay, so I have to say it then in this. Yeah, and I, I think I said the meaning of life. Is what I said to him. And he was like, damn, I don't usually get to talk about that kind of stuff. And I was like, let's go, man. What's the meaning of life? <laughs> and uh, that's how we got into it. He got excited. All right. Well, if I'm supplying a topic, then I'll say what I was thinking about, which is a little bit obscure, but for listeners of our show, this will probably be entertaining. So there is one guest that we have tried to get for over 10 years and we've put serious, serious work into it. And this is a person who doesn't do any media. (laughs) And his name is John McPhee. And I believe 
that you are the only person who has written a profile of John McPhee. So my first question is, how did you become the only person who has successfully convinced John McPhee to allow you to write a profile of him? Good question. And that would be a good get for you. I'm, I'm kind of laughing here, imagining John McPhee on a podcast. It's like, I don't know. It's like imagining Edgar Allan Poe making a TikTok or something. <laughs> so that happened because he, he was publishing his writing book, draft number four. And I think an, I think my editor, Sasha, said, hey, John McPhee, how about John McPhee? I said, I would love to write about John McPhee. Absolute writing hero of mine when I got a book contract and was going to write my first book. I decided I needed to take it very seriously in the way I was going to, and I needed to really like ramp up my ambition. And the way I was going to do that was to reread all of John McPhee from the beginning through to the end. And so I started ordering these beautiful hardcover used copies of John McPhee books and reading through them and getting inspired. And like, I think I got through 13 of them before I had to stop because it was just too much and kind of overpowered my brain. And I started trying to write like him, which I can't do. So I said, of course, I'd love to write about John McPhee. And we emailed and um, he said, yes. So that's what you have to do. You got to send an email and ask, and then he'll say yes, in my experience. Um, and no, I did ask him that question, actually, because you're right. I think as far as I know, one other person decades ago wrote like a newspaper profile of him. So I asked McPhee at some point, like, why did you say yes to this? And he said something like, oh, my publisher asked me to do something. So I said, sure. And that was it. It was, I wish I had a cooler story. Like, you know, <laughs> I wrote him a, a handwritten letter and sent him a pine cone from his favorite place, but nope, that's what happened. And this is part of kind of the power of the New York Times as an institution, which is still entertaining and amazing to me. I've been there more than 10 years now, but um, it really opens doors. I mean, it happened with, I wrote a profile of Haruki Murakami. And again, it was like the publisher was like, he's agreed to do one American promotional thing for this giant new novel and it, it will be you. So it's, it's really funny to find myself in that position because I think of myself as this kind of goober who's running around a little bit out of control and disorganized taking weird angles toward things, wanting to write about bad ideas all the time. And then somehow I also get to be the guy who represents the New York Times and writes the one thing about somebody that they allow to have written. So I don't get it myself. Both the Murakami profile and the McVie profile, I think, have parts in the opening parts of the story that describe you either getting lost while trying to get to the interview or getting, mm. I believe, directions from John McPhee. When you're doing these kinds of stories and you're sort of like an emissary of the New York Times on some level, but you're also like the human being, Sam Anderson, who is quite distinct from the New York Times, like what's your persona like? Like what are you like socially with people like Murakami and McPhee when you've got like, let's say a day with them. Mm. I have never been very strategic about these things, probably for good and for ill. Like sometimes I'll listen to some of my colleagues talk like Taffy, Taffy Brodesser Ackner, and she's such a genius about these things. She's so, she's so thoughtful and calculating not to make her sound evil, but I don't feel like I have that. I kind of trust that if I go bumbling in with a very kind of naive authenticity and just be myself, like it'll work out. That said, I'm kind of making myself sound like a cartoon character. I like Taffy and like everybody else, I think do just ridiculous amounts of prep and research and and I try to know everything I try to kind of shock that person with the depth of my knowledge about them so that we can so you can instantly kind of signal like 
listen, I've read all the other interviews. I've read all your books. I've read everything. Let's get past that stuff. And I'm also, but I, I think that is part of maybe it is strategic. Like I'm a human being. I'm just a guy. I know my business card says the New York Times, and that's why I'm here. But while I'm here, I'm going to be a guy who is very idiosyncratic and unimpressive and like emotionally here and bumbling and nervous. I often just tell them that I'm feeling nervous and um, pretty kind of wide open, I would say, is my persona. When I think of McPhee's work and your work, the biggest overlap for me is in your book, Boomtown, the history of Oklahoma City. It has sort of a dual structure where it's about the Oklahoma City thunder and about the history of Oklahoma City. And the history of Oklahoma City has that encyclopedic element where it seems like you have like digested every piece of Oklahoma City history that was available as a human being in 2015 or whenever the book came out. How do you decide from that like great stream of research what to put into a book like that or also like in the context of a story where there's even more limited space? What is your experience sort of with distilling that kind of research? Yeah, that's the really agonizing, depressing, sad part about the job. When I decide to write about a subject, it's my favorite way to be a human on planet Earth is to be just blasting off on that jet fuel of enthusiasm into this universe of the subject. And that means it's like every cell in my body like flips to some open position and the whole world is just streaming in everything that has to do with this subject. And there's just this incredible richness. It almost feels like a religious, like a Buddhist sense of just openness and transparency almost, and almost like non-existence for myself, because everything is just aimed at taking in whatever that subject is. And it's my, sorry, my son is texting me some NBA memes, it looks like. So... I love that. I love being in that place where everything is just coming in and everything is potentially important. And, you know, I'm like underlining every great sentence that John McPhee has ever written. And then I'm typing it up into this embarrassingly long set of reading notes, documents organized by book. And then when you sit down with it as a writer who has a job and his job is to fill a little window of magazine or a website, all of that ecstatic inhaling has to stop. And you realize that you've collected approximately 900,000% of what you need or could ever use. And then for me, there's always this terrible sense of like betrayal, of betraying the subject because I understand the full richness of the subject. I'm holding it in the wide open arms of my soul. And what am I going to do with it? I'm going to like squeeze out this tiny little toothpaste bit onto the toothbrush of the, of the magazine space. It's <laughs> a good coherent metaphor. And I've had a lot of conversations about this with different therapists and many editors trying to kind of come to terms with it, to accept it. And I still have a lot of trouble accepting it. I mean, what my great editor, Sasha Weiss, tells me is like, your imaginary version of the thing that you're holding in your head, this wondrous vastness of the subject, it doesn't exist for anyone else outside of you. And so if it's going to exist in the world, you have to turn it into this thing that can be transmitted to other people. <clears throat> which I grudgingly accept. Actually, the metaphor that um, this was a good metaphor for listeners of long form of the long form podcast, who I assume are are largely other writers in the writing world who like hate listen to the person talking and it's like that guy's a fucking moron. Um, so if you're listening to long form podcast right now, listen to this part. The metaphor that has helped me come to terms with this is that universe of content I was describing is like the most epic and glorious landscape. 
imagine you've you know you've gone to i don't know the wilderness of alaska or something and you see just this mountain range with glaciers and 15 different waterfalls and forests and meadows and just like a truly sublime panorama and what i had to realize was like you can't give anybody that landscape what you have to do as a writer is you have to construct a path that goes through a part of that landscape and that is strategically placed so that it kind of shows off your favorite parts of the landscape. It gives a big panoramic view like you've enjoyed of different parts of the landscape. Maybe it curls behind one waterfall and through a meadow. And in the course of making that trail, which someone will follow step by step by step by step, and maybe they have two hours, maybe they have five hours, maybe they have 30 minutes, whatever length, you have to find a way to give them as much of that landscape experience as you can, but you can't give them the whole landscape. Mm. And so that's what, when I'm trying to write a piece, that's what I'm trying to do is to reduce that, to create a word by word path that somehow gestures at the whole landscape without expecting them, the reader, to put their foot on every piece of that landscape as I have tried to do in researching it. So that's a way that I feel a little bit better about it, actually. This is a different thread, but uh, it just struck me that I, you know, I've been doing this show for over 500 episodes, and I believe someone correct me if you're wrong, that you're the first person who's talked about discussing their own writing with their therapist. Mm. Does your therapist read your pieces? And like, what conversations like do you have with a therapist about the writing life? Oh, so many. I can't believe this hasn't come up. Um, how deep do you want to go? It, I mean, really, like, the, it's like the therapy cliche, like, tell me about your mother. It goes back to early childhood. And, and like, I didn't understand until I was in my 30s until after my writing dreams had come true and I had, I had been hired as a uh, staff writer at the New York Times Magazine, which is about as good a magazine job as I ever could have fantasized about. And I had that classic thing of like, oh, I achieved my dream. Crashing depression. It's not what I thought. It's not fulfilling whatever fantasy, adolescent fantasy I had concocted when I was 15 years old and decided I needed to be a fancy, impressive writer. And so I ended up in therapy. I ended up being diagnosed with depression. And I ended up doing a lot of months of hard talking and thinking about why I wanted to become a writer in the first place and what this fantasy was and what the difference between actually being a writer and my fantasy of a writer was and what that all meant. And um, I learned a lot about myself. I don't feel like I really became a functional human adult until I was about 35 after I got through all that stuff. And I would like to apologize here on the podcast to all my editors I worked with previously. Actually, just blanket apology to every editor I've ever worked with including everyone I'm currently working with. But but back then it was worse because I didn't understand a lot about myself and what was going on and my, and my problems and hangups. And uh, I probably blamed editors for some of it when it wasn't, it wasn't their fault. Anyway, so we talk about that kind of stuff. And then we talk about like my problem with deadlines and like we talk about what you and I just talked about, about the imagined ideal vision of the piece that I carry in my soul that I can't betray by actually writing real words down on, uh, on a computer screen or a piece of paper. And, and, um, we don't get into the content of my work so much. Mm. It happens sometimes. Like when I, I got to write a profile of Ann Carson, the poet, another super genius who doesn't really like to do interviews. And, um, I remember a lot of talk around that time about how Ann Carson was like 
some kind of like fantasy surrogate mother for me or something. So we went pretty deep on that one. And then what else? My old therapist used to read my stuff, which I always found a little bit unnerving. I mean, she was always very complimentary about it. She was like this piece about, remember she read the piece about uh, Michelangelo's David and his cracked ankles and how he might break and explode. And that piece was all about idealism and fantasies of perfection and how messed up they are. And so she was into that one. That was a very therapy kind of piece. I don't know, like all my stuff is kind of shot through with therapy type thoughts. So it's probably not surprising that I just talked to my therapist about it. So you had these fantasies of your life as a writer, and then you've now settled into a different reality. But putting yourself back in the you that you were when you were starting off, like, what did you imagine this life would be like? And what drew you to the magazine feature as uh, something to pursue as your career? I didn't grow up in a literary family. We were kind of lower middle class, um, raised by single mom, mostly divorced parents. She was always working super creative in other ways, but it's like, it wasn't like a house full of books, you know, with academics as parents. So when I first got in really into reading and like this idea of myself as becoming a writer, I was 15, 16, 17 years old. And the literary voice that I remember really hitting me in high school, and this is maybe common, maybe not, was Ralph Waldo Emerson. I remember we read Emerson in a class and I was like, whoa, this voice, it just has so much weight behind it. Like it's so authoritative, but it's also full of so much energy and like creativity and invention. And just like, there's something about just those sentences, these kind of oracular sentences where like everything he was writing, like every phrase was a kind of like, I mean, it's almost like listening to like great lyricist, you know, great rap song, great any kind of song where you're like, God damn, every single lyric is like hitting, like every phrase is this whole invention, this whole like tight, compressed thought. And I just found that so impressive. And there was a sense of power to it. And I think also growing up at that time, I lived in Lodi, California, which was this very sort of suburban Northern California edge of like the orbit of Sacramento area. I know Lodi. I'm from Berkeley. So I've uh, oh, okay. yeah, ma- yeah, yeah. many, many times have I peed in the bathrooms in Lodi on road trips and so forth. Oh, sweet. Berkeley was like the, like Berkeley was like very sophisticated artsy place that we would go sometimes. Like when I was 16 and I decided to get my nose pierced, I did it on the streets of Berkeley, California. Telegraph Avenue. Great place to get a yeah. piercing that will later uh, get infected. Oh, for sure. It just blows up like a balloon, big red balloon. Yeah. Yeah. You know that lady who sits at that table? Um, So yeah, but there in Lodi, I think in what felt to me like just suburban, you know, wasteland, I think the idea of being literary, and I'd always been a good reader since I was a little kid. And I'd always felt, I think this is like a classic child of divorce thing. I'd always felt like kind of safe and cocooned in a book. And so I was good with words. I was good with stories. And I read this Emerson and it was that time of life where you're kind of groping for some new identity to set yourself apart. And I was like, I'm going to be impressive, powerful, smart, sophisticated, non-Lodi, literary guy. I'm going to get to New York City and I'm going to knock everyone's socks off with my amazing phrases and sentences. So that was pretty much the idea. And I got, I got very into, I didn't know what any of that meant because again, I had no like organic connection to writing and and literature or anything. And so it was this total disgusting, like adolescent fantasy. And, and I used to, I got very into Dostoevsky because that was like, to me, the, the most impressive thing you could 
carry around high school with you. So I used to like walk down the streets of Lodi, California on my way to school, literally reading while walking the Brothers Karamazov and uh, all the rest of Dostoevsky. So I kind of blew through all of Dostoevsky and like Victor Hugo. And like, it's for some reason, like the 19th century European novel for me was the, the shorthand for literary fancy guy. And it was so pretentious and awful in, in retrospect. Um, but I also still love all those authors. And there is something inside me still that has that kind of hangs on to that stupid dream of, of literary impressiveness. So yeah, so I wanted to be a 19th century novelist. And I tried for a long time to write that kind of stuff. I tried to write fiction. I thought that's what you're supposed to do. And it was so bad. And it was so, so truly embarrassing. Like I like to, I like self-disclosure and I like embarrassment. I like to sort of embarrass myself in my own writing. Dredging up this old fiction I wrote, like in late high school, early college, that's too far for me. If anyone is listening to this and has access to any of that, I'll find you. It'll get <laughs> ugly. Um, and at some point in college, when I was like reading my way through the library, just like book by book in the stacks, picking up anyone I had vaguely heard of or seemed interesting and, and just flipping to the first page and just like looking for a voice to sweep me away. At some point in doing that, um, I, by the way, I worked at the library, so I was being paid to do this. I was supposed to be shelving the books and I was just reading them all. And I discovered the essay as a form like the creative essay, I discovered like all the old New Yorker writers, E.B. White and James Thurber and like Dorothy Parker's book reviews, all this stuff, which just struck me immediately is so funny and engaging and full of life and so much closer to the voice that was in my head and how I actually sounded. It was like sophisticated and impressive and cool, but it was also kind of colloquial and lived in the real world. And the combination of those two things was really exciting to me. And that instantly almost became my form. And I started writing essays like for the school paper and like sending them out to try to get published in magazines. And almost immediately I could do that. I could imitate those voices and get much closer to my actual voice. And so that just took off. I never wanted to be like a, a newspaper reporter. I really, I, I really was stuck on that self-aggrandizing idea of like being a literary impressive writer. And so I always held on to that, to being like an artist. And so at some point, like that love of the essay, personal essay, but also essay about anything out in the world, just kind of found a nice equilibrium with reporting, going out and doing reported stuff, just just going out in the world and inhaling, like we were saying before, these people and experiences and things, and then trying to write about them as artfully as I could. That And that just felt like really exciting and natural and good. And so that's what I did. Support for Long Form this week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs, threw them in there, listened to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something like very quickly. The voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free. Now, normally you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier. You said something about sort of developing a voice that's like your own voice. And 
earlier in this conversation, you made a metaphor that I unfortunately will mangle if I attempt, but it involved like something to do with like squeezing a toothpaste roll to get some toothpaste out. It seemed like a metaphor that would be in your writing and and you kind of freestyled it like pretty effectively off the cuff there as you developed as a writer. What was your experience of trying to sort of like communicate in writing the way you think and talk? Some people find this very easy and fluid, a, a minority of people, and some people find it quite difficult to sort of uh, express their natural personality in prose. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I've always tended toward the hard labor school revising. I mean, if I have a kind of superpower, it's just infinite patience to revise forever. Also, it's part of my problem because I have trouble getting things done and turning them in within a window that makes them useful. I was going to say on time, but it's so far beyond on time that like <laughs> it doesn't even apply. So I, I have trouble with time because I can infinitely cycle my brain through the same set of sentences over and over, looking for ways to make them more entertaining to me, fresher, funnier. And I think, yeah, I think for some people to get that freshness of the brain voice, they have to just pour it out of them. And for me, it's like, I do not worry about losing that freshness. I feel like I could revise something 700 times and that will get me closer to the actual brain voice that I'm looking for. That seems like some kind of paradox and maybe is wrong. But for me, it's a real combination of, of those kind of outpourings. I try to do a lot of just free writing stuff because since, you know, college writing classes where I learned that that was a thing, that's always been a really almost like a magic spell to sit down and just be like, okay, I know I need to describe for this article the different basketball styles of these three superstar players on the Nets. So let me just sit down and write for like half an hour and see what pours out. And sometimes the stuff will just pour out and it'll be really good. That passage that I wrote in the Kevin Durant profile about their different basketball playing style and Kyrie Irving and came out as like this sort of five act drama, every possession when he's dribbling the ball. And that really just poured out in a free write almost as published. It almost never goes that smoothly, but it is a combination between that kind of outpouring and then going back and considering with just ruthless, endlessly patient logic is this what I actually want to say? Is this slot in this sentence doing the job that I want it to do? You know, you have these like internal rhythms that just come very organically from yourself and probably from decades of reading other voices that you admire and listening to comedians and music and whatever, you know, you've got the rhythm in you. And so you just read your stuff as if you're not yourself feeling the rhythm inside you against the rhythm on the page and feeling where they don't line up. And then you try to make it line up and it's just infinitely difficult and grinding. It's really grinding. It's like, you know, that video game term where you just go grind to build up your experience points. It's like you do that through a piece of writing 800,000 times, and then you have a finished piece of writing. Can you talk a little bit more about the idea of free writing and literally what that entails for you? Are you writing full sentences and paragraphs? Are you taking notes? Are you on a computer? Are you doing it by hand? Yeah. All of the above, most naturally for me, I'm doing it by hand. And I think that's just a product of growing up in the 1860s like I did, you know. But growing up before we had computers at home and before we had cell phones and all that, writing to me meant writing by hand. And when I was doing my early writing and wanting to be a writer, it was all in, you know, just a notebook I would carry around. And so for me, that still feels like the most natural way to do it and the way that's connected most directly to my brain. So yeah, I have now this um, very cool, silly, fake paper tablet called the Remarkable 2 that I use that is um, great. 
and it really kind of just disappears and, and almost feels like writing on paper. So I use that a lot for free writing. But yeah, I'll sit down and scribble around with my hand. And I am writing full sentences. I'm writing like almost like a dear diary sort of thing, mm. you know, and so and just just really thinking out loud, like, OK, what do I want to say about Kevin Durant? Oh, God, I hate this piece right now. Why do I have to write it? I didn't even want to write about him. I originally want to write. And I'll just like burn off sort of those fumes. And then suddenly you're down into the real stuff and you get on a roll and you start just following a thought. And there's almost this like primal, exciting, almost like molten lava sort of I am watching the fundamental stuff come out of the center of the earth fresh just like the cutting fresh edge of creation and like i'm just riding on that and um that's the point you want to get to and it's also it's also always been very therapeutic to me i can just be like dying with anxiety about a piece or about something else and i'll start writing about that thing and within a sentence or two of writing the anxiety starts to go away and suddenly I'm just kind of centered and present and thinking. Yeah, so that's how I try to do it. It doesn't work for me so smoothly on a computer, mainly for distraction reasons, because I can click over and do something else. You know, I do have, I do have, because uh, I'm hanging on to my brand as like pretentious, fancy literary guy. I've got a couple of old typewriters and sometimes I actually use those. They're great. It's just a machine that does only writing. It does nothing else. So yeah, different ways I, I use to try to keep myself surfing on that edge of, of, of real thought, real thinking, real expression. You um, referenced trying to describe the basketball style of uh, Kevin Durant and uh, Kyrie Irving, which strikes me as like a, a difficult thing to describe. Like it's difficult to describe like how a person plays basketball there's the very literal but it's not very interesting they dribble they shoot and i feel like in your art profiles you are attracted to writing about people whose art is difficult to describe weird al <laughs> reggie watts laurie anderson those are all three highest degree of difficulty to explain <laughs> what the thing they make is and why people like it and how audiences connect to it. Mm -hmm. What is your strategy for describing the hard to describe and also what sort of attracts you to them as, as subjects? Well, number one, I have to, I mostly have to love the person I'm writing about, or at least love what they do. I have to be fascinated by what they do. Otherwise, I'm not going to have the energy behind it to do all the grinding it's going to take to describe it. For me, that makes me want to articulate what they're doing and why it works. That's always something that's been that's really excited me as a reader. Like I think about like Roland Barthes, like the mythologies, this this French literary critic genius from the mid 20th century who had this little magazine column for a while called Mythologies, where he just wrote about the most basic things in everyday French life, and he would describe them and how they worked symbolically in culture. And it sounds very dry, but he would take something like, I remember he would do one like, uh, he wrote one about like wine versus milk. And I was like, wine versus milk? Like, what are you going to say? And then it was so incredible. It was like wine is like, I don't know, like this fiery elixir and the liquid of chaos and milk is like this, like this soothing sort of wholesome, like grounded beverage that comes from a beast. And like, I, he just would get rolling on anything like that and articulate things that you had felt in your life because you're part of the culture where these things exist, but you've never seen articulated like that. And it was so powerful to me. So I like to do that. I like to find something that's really working for me. That's just making me interested and excited. And then I like to tell people why it works. Mm. And part of that is explaining it to myself. So yeah, I always feel like, what is it? You know what it is? It's like, um, I grew up in Lodi, California. I had this stepfather who was, a factory worker. He worked at the General Mills cereal factory. He was a working class Chicago guy who came out there to work at the cereal factory. And 
there's nothing fancy about him whatsoever. He loves sports. He's the one who got me into sports. And he wasn't literary in any way, but he was also like incredibly smart. And the things he got me into, you know, watching Michael Jordan play or uh, watching the Chicago Bears, like those things have deep value and are just as interesting as almost anything you're going to find written about in the literary world. And so I almost feel an attraction to like translate that kind of stuff that I grew up with into a quote unquote literary language or, or just to articulate it so that more people can see why it's cool. And so that I can explain to myself why it's cool and worth paying attention to. So I feel like anything that's fun and interesting, anything at all, a cat sitting on a fence, you can explain why that thing is beautiful and interesting and what, what it's doing in your life that is worthwhile. And I don't know, once you kind of accept that challenge, it's just, it's everywhere. And it's a really meaningful life mission, sort of. That's kind of a McPhee idea that like, yeah. if you shine the light and you go deep enough with enough detail into anything that there's sort of infinite interest and complexity within it, whether it's geology or a basketball player that we can basically like find the, the whole universe inside looking at this. Yep. hundred percent. And there was a, and there was a whole tradition of like old timey English essayists who, I mean, like the, the phrase, all things considered, that was this GK Chesterton book. Like they choose provocatively trivial subjects and make them fascinating. I mean, Emerson was doing a similar thing. Yeah. McPhee, there's like the legendary case with McPhee is the book oranges, this tiny book, but it's all about oranges, um, which is like, you know, it becomes almost like experimental literature at that point where the hurdle is to, is to get people to care about this thing. And I, I love that. There is a little kind of impish little rebel in me that doesn't just want to write about the obvious and popular thing that people are already interested in because that's too easy. And I, what I want to do is like yank people over to areas they would never want to look otherwise. When you're say tackling, um, like taking weird owls live band really seriously, I feel like mm. that's like a corner that you pretty much can like stand on alone and say like, <laughs> yep, this, this, I'm enthusiastic about this and here are my thoughts. And then on the flip side, I think this is probably the topic you've written the most about basketball. There's no way to be the only person on that corner. In fact, there are millions of people in America who are all expressing their views and opinions about the NBA every day. What changes when you're not in the obscure and, and showing this secret interest that no one else has, but are in fact showing this national interest in the biggest NBA stars and these teams that, God, I mean, the, the Brooklyn Nets, could any team have ever been written as much about as last year's Brooklyn Nets? What's that like? Mm -hmm. Again, I'm really drawn to the quirky and off to the side. And sometimes I think I annoy my editors because I want to write about those sorts of things. And you really can feel the difference having done both. Like when the Durant piece came out, you're in a different universe of mass interest. And there's a part of it that feels really intoxicating. I'm like, oh my God, I'm like on the radar. People are talking about my piece. Like, Someone just showed me recently, I don't know how I missed it at the time, but Ted Cruz tweeted about that Durant piece. He's like, this is the best writing you'll ever read, not just about basketball, but about, and I was like, okay, I'm glad I didn't see that at the time. <laughs> but it, it reaches like that level of cultural penetration. And it, and it, it, there is something about it that's kind of intoxicating, but maybe this is narcissistic. This is probably it's a lot of, a lot of what I'm grappling with especially lately is like narcissism and how many, how many of my thoughts about the world are just because like I'm putting myself in the middle of it. 
And maybe even the writing subject choices about that. Maybe it's like, I have to show everyone how special I am by choosing things that they aggressively do not care about and forcing them to care. I need to overpower all of their instincts of interest and how to spend their time as a human on planet Earth. And I'm going to drag them over here against their will. Yeah, maybe that's like the ultimate sort of narcissistic move rather than just being like, oh, everyone's interested in this. Let me say some cool things about it. I don't know. I mean, I think I approach the writing in both cases the same. They both feel equally hard. There is, I guess there's an extra level of delight in writing about the familiar thing in a really unexpected way. Like the Durant piece, you know, I started with this ridiculous opening about an asteroid hitting the earth 35 million years ago. And so that, that part feels fun. You kind of, you, you have to do a little bit less explaining like who the person is because everybody already knows. So I don't know. It's, it's fun to do sometimes. And I got to think, I'm going to have to think about this. What are my motivations here? Cause it does feel very, it feels very like, uh, I bet this is all just more gross adolescent fantasy stuff. Cause it does feel very pure and very like saintly to be the one who is shining a light on things that aren't so obvious. It feels very like underground and very sort of hipster, but maybe I should just write about who's popular. I was going to say Beyonce, but that's, I guess Beyonce is still popular, isn't she? Very much so. But something that I read a bunch of these pieces like back to back. So I think in my brain, the like overlaps are very obvious, even though Hmm. there's like multiple years, but like, okay, taking a profile of John McPhee, and Kevin Durant, interesting pairing. John McPhee seems to be completely unaware of what the world thinks about John McPhee and <laughs> literally like cancels his own birthday party in order to avoid a celebration of his own legacy, basically just shielding himself from any feedback of the world. And mm. then you have this moment in the Kevin Durant profile where you're like, hey, can I look at the mentions on your Twitter? And he's like, no. And you realize that there's like a fire hose of other people's opinions, which are literally just being fed into his brain at all times. And a lot of that profile is about what that does to you, what like Mm. other people's assumptions do to you. A lot of when you profile an NBA star, in some ways, part of the story is what everyone thinks about this person. It's, Mm -hmm. It's the opposite of the, here's my private obsession and how you should understand it. Here is a person who is sort of standing naked before the nation and who they are is being shaped by like what people are saying about them on Twitter. I mean, I think Kevin Durant might be actually one of the greatest examples of that alive where a large portion of who Kevin Durant is publicly is sort of a defense against like being criticized on Twitter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, it's a real warped life that those NBA guys lead. And then especially, you know, there's layers within that. But when you get up to the stratosphere with like Durant and LeBron, and I I can't even imagine how dehumanizing that is on all those levels. So yeah, it's not something I like to participate in. Um, And I guess the pleasure I take out of doing that kind of writing is, again, so much of the engagement with those people is so superficial. I mean, the way people have opinions about them is just garbage and a waste of time. And I think what's really, this is extremely obvious to say, but what's really beautiful and amazing about Kevin Durant is how he plays basketball. <laughs> and to watch him play basketball, there is to, to see that kind of fluidity and that mastery of a set of motions. And... So to describe what that looks like and how that's different from other great basketball players is to me kind of endlessly fascinating. And then to think about why would a human being feel compelled to make himself this great at something this narrow, um, which is always a fascinating question. So, so those are the things I kind of want to answer in those cases. And then the stuff about his reputation and what people are saying and all that is layered on top of that because you're right that's like the atmosphere he's breathing 
I'm going to indulge one of my personal interests right now. Um, I'm very interested in the dual narrative book. Uh, you mm. wrote a book where there's alternating chapters that are about basketball and the city of Oklahoma City. When you wrote this book, why did you choose that? And like, what did you learn about like putting together two stories into one book? The part for me that I really like is this idea of like getting a breather. Like sometimes I feel like overwhelmed mm -hmm. by a story. I'm like, I think if you had been like, I wrote a story about the Oklahoma City Thunder, I'd be like, oh, I don't know. Like I already read his magazine pieces, whatever. But mm -hmm. the fact that you're getting it in this sort of alternating rhythm where there's breaks and there's air and space between it, it tickles my brain in a way I, I enjoy. Thank you. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> I think that's also what I'm doing partly is um, at a hundred different scales in any piece of writing, you know, you're playing with kind of tensions pushing against each other, whether it's little rhythmic tensions in a phrase, sentence lengths, messing around with the transition or lack of transition between paragraphs, juxtapositions. There's all these, all these kinds of scales at which you're playing, playing with that kind of tension. And the point of it in the end is, yeah, to tickle the reader's brain, to keep them interested on the tiniest level of the work and on the largest level of the work. So, so I think the structure, I mean, it really, it was not premeditated again. I'm not a sit down and outline it ahead of time kind of writer. I did that total immersion research, talking to as many people as I could, having as many wild experiences as I could thing, and then sat down with it. And I was like, I don't know how this is going to work. And so I started kind of playing with structures and doing a lot of trial and error. And at some point, it just felt like the thematic echoes and the narrative echoes between the basketball season and the history of this place, which I'd never heard about, but to me, it's like one of the great mythic American stories that we have. Those things just really bounced off of each other in interesting ways and lined up in all kinds of bizarre, unpredictable ways. And so I just started laying them against each other. And I remember thinking like this book is going to just have to find its form. Like I'm just going to throw all this stuff together in chaos and it's going to have to find its form just like Oklahoma city did after the land run. And that's pretty much how it worked. And so it was just a lot of feeling out those rhythms, those narrative rhythms, like how much do you want about this here? How much do you want about this here? Uh, how much can the reader stand? And I also love books with short chapters. I'm thinking of like Cat's Cradle or something, some Vonnegut where you just know like you're like, oh, this chapter is a page and a half. Great. I love that feeling where you see the number and the chapter is not the full page. It's like mm -hmm. two paragraphs. I love it. The rhythm. I love it. Why not? Yeah. Why not throw a bunch of different rhythms at people? So that's what I was trying to do. And then I, I worked with a really brilliant editor, Kevin Doughton at Crown, who really helped me figure out how to do that jumping while still keeping this kind of narrative stream flowing through all the different chunks rather than just having these stagnant things sitting next to each other. So that was definitely a skill I learned in writing that book. I didn't know that. I would say the book taught me two crucial things. One, it taught me the actual history of America, because in telling the story of this one city, you really have to understand how America has worked for the last 200 years. And that was a real education for me. And then number two, it taught me how to write narrative, how to sustain narrative. I started thinking of it as like serving the God of narrative, like sacrificing things to the God of narrative. Like, okay, I can't just like describe why this guy was interesting and cool. I have to create a scene where he's stepping off the train into Oklahoma city for the first time. What would he see? And then I'd like call my genius historian friend and be like, Hey Bob, it's 1919 August. I'm stepping off the train platform in Oklahoma city what would I see? And he'd get excited and talk me through it. And so I was learning to do moves like that, which I didn't consciously do in my writing before. Um, it maybe felt a little gimmicky to me. I, I sort of, I learned to respect the power of those kinds of moves. Like the major felt his boots crunch under the gravel as the, <laughs> as the helicopter 
heavy with payload rumbled overhead. <laughs> it's going to be a hell of a morning for those, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> Felt goofy, but it works. I guess my last question is like going forward, what you want to do and, and sort of what excites you looking forward in, into your writing career. Today, I kind of feel like I want, this week I felt like I want to quit writing forever, which is a feeling I have when I'm closing a, a piece. I'm finishing a profile right now. Um, it was just one of those weeks where it was like, closes next week. We're talking on Friday, Monday, they were like, hey, can you send us the complete draft right now? The top editors are really antsy. They want to read this right now. And I was like, um, yeah, I think I can have it maybe by later this afternoon. And then it became one of those weeks where I just didn't realize how much work I had in front of me and how much writing I still had left to do. And it was all like it existed in my head in that fantasy state. And I didn't realize how little I had gotten onto the page. And there's a point at which I always think like, oh, this is this is essentially done. Why are you guys all worried? Because it exists in my head, but then I have to get. So anyway, I've just had this like kind of hectic white knuckle week of writing. And I think I'm a 45 year old man. Like my daughter just left for college. Do I need to be having like late night white knuckle last minute writing sessions? Like if I'm not good enough at this point to not do that, maybe I just should stop writing. So that's kind of where my head's at this week. I'm, ex I guess, I'm most excited to quit my job and stop and not write ever, anything ever again. And lately, I've been, I've gotten really into drawing, very like amateur, bad art, and so I spend a lot of happy time, like drawing bananas during meetings, and drawing portraits of Kevin Durant and other people. So. Um, yeah, I guess I'm really excited to see my art career take off and to get represented by a gallery. If there's any gallerists listening to the long form podcast this week. No, I don't know. I mean, I, I do want to do another book that Oklahoma city book, like killed me. It took me five years. It was supposed to take me one year. I'm not going to quit writing. There's too much to write about. I mean, that's the thing is like, like you were saying sort of everywhere you look, everything is exciting potentially. Once you get that McPhee sort of ethic into your bloodstream, then there's always billions of fascinating things to be written about. And so I think I'll just be writing always forever until I die. But I do want to do another book because that felt amazing to produce something on that scale and, and handle all these separate narratives and kind of intertwine them. Mm -hmm. It was more satisfying, I think, than a than a magazine story. And also I'm working on another big project for the times, which I can't talk about yet. Um, that I'm actually really, really excited about. I think um, we were originally going to do this interview when that came out. And then at a certain point, uh, whoever was in charge of your scheduling was like, eh, maybe you should just do the interview. We're, we're not really sure when that's coming out. <laughs> I think it'll be out in the spring. I'll just say it has to do with animals, which are a great passion of mine. I've always loved animals. And um, so I get to do a big animal project that I'm so, so excited about. Um, I'm excited here in my 40s to keep burning off more of the impurities of narcissism and adolescent fantasy that keep warping my life and to have a more and more clear-eyed view of how the world actually works and my place in it and to write more and more and more and stop tripping over my own feet and produce more books and more everything. And also I've worked really hard this last year to modernize my pickup basketball game. Mm. I still have twice weekly pickup basketball games and I've never been a three point shooter and you just can't, survive anymore. And so I've been working really hard twice a week on my three-point shot. And I'm actually kind of becoming a somewhat reliable weapon from three now. So that's, that's pretty exciting to me. Thank you so much for this interview. <laughs> Thanks a lot. It was fun.
Hey, uh, thanks for listening to the Long Form Podcast. Uh, thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Thanks to Gabriella Saldivia, who edited this week's episode. Thanks to Megan Valley, who did the show notes. Thanks to everyone over at Vox Media. Thanks to all the sponsors. Of course, thanks to you, the listener. We'll be back next week. Support for Long Form this week came from Listening. Listening makes it easy to convert written text to pleasant audio tracks that you can take in no matter what you're doing. It offers AI voices that manage to express emotion and correctly pronounce complicated technical terms, all while sounding like actual human beings, not robots. The Listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot for yourself risk-free Normally, you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Listening. Your life just got a lot easier.